Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of Crocodomics, where I wear Crocs and interview experts about important policy issues around the globe. For the inaugural season, we will be discussing the U.S. Africa Command, or AFRICOM, and U.S. Africa policy. Today, I will be joined by my first expert, Elizabeth Schmidt, a professor emeritus of history at Loyola University in Maryland. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Schmidt. So for my first question, in your book, you talk about how the war on communism shifted to the U.S.-Africa Command, AFRICOM. Can you elaborate a bit more on that transition? Sure, sure. Yeah, more specifically, or more generally, I I guess I should say, uh, the war on Mm -hmm. communism shifted to the war on terror. And AFRICOM is is a major part of the U.S. war on terror in Africa. So um, so let me backpedal to the, the Cold War. Um, so World War II was actually a, a major turning point for events in Africa in that the war um, really affected the African populations. There was a lot of uh, compulsory military service. Africans were recruited into the European armed forces to fight the wars in North Africa, Europe, and Asia. Um, people who were left behind were required to provide Uh, cash crops, food crops to provision troops and people in the metropolitan companies, countries. And uh, so it was it was extremely stressful and trying not only in terms of the casualties of the of the soldiers, but the the poverty and the increasing impoverishment of the people left behind. And so after the war, there was a real anti-colonial surge, especially amongst the veterans who were returning after fighting for freedom and democracy abroad to being subjects in a very repressive empire situation at home. And so, as I'm sure you know, there ultimately African uh, countries gained political independence, mostly in the 1960s. But the ni- late 1940s, 1950s were um, filled with anti-colonial actions and first calls for reform and then later political independence. And so the European powers that were the colonial powers, especially France and Britain, but also Belgium and Portugal, were determined to try to keep control of the decolonization process. Once they saw the writing on the wall and they knew that it was going to happen, they wanted to make sure that the governments that followed would continue to protect their political and economic interests. The same ones they'd had as colonial powers, but now they wouldn't have the hassle of political rule and and unrest and protests. Meanwhile, the United States and the Soviet Union, the emerging Cold War superpowers, also wanted to get involved in the act. They saw decolonization as an opportunity to um, move in where the European colonial powers were being forced out. So the United States was espousing principles of freedom, democracy, self-determination, free trade, which would allow them access to all these resources that were bound up in the colonial system. But they shared, the US and Western Europe shared this concern about radical nationalist regimes coming to power that wanted to redistribute power 
and, and resources. So resources as well as power. So they didn't mind a government that just wanted to have a black person you know, as the face, the president or the prime minister. What they didn't want was a government that was going to make their business profits lower to give them less access to these valuable resources, to make them pay more for the resources. And worst of all, to let the Soviet Union and its allies get control of these resources. So, um, so the Western powers, Cold War and colonial, wanted to um, control the decolonization process. So this period of decolonization overlapped with the Cold War. And so what happened during that period was whenever there was a threat to Western interests, it was termed as a communist threat. Radical nationalists were viewed as communists. Whether or not they were Marxist, Leninists, it didn't matter if they wanted to redistribute wealth that was considered communism. And so the United States and Western European countries wound up supporting some really awful, brutal regimes that were very undemocratic, uh, very repressive towards their populations, but anti-communist. The communist threat was used as an excuse for military intervention, either to support uh, autocratic governments or um, to go against any kind of nationalist movements that they, they didn't like, or to overthrow the radical nationalists that came to power, like the assassination of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, uh, the wars against the governments in Angola and Mozambique, et cetera. All right, so, so this idea of this boogeyman out there um, that is responsible for everything, not looking at local grievances on the ground, not looking at these movements as legitimate, that carries over into the war on terror. So what happened um, in the 1990s, so after the end of the Cold War, is that uh, many of the, the dictators that were supported by the West were overthrown by pro-democracy and rebel forces insurgencies, not necessarily the same groups. Um, but these, these dictators had been um, kept in power, put in power in some cases, but kept in power mostly by the West, although there were some that were backed by the Soviet Union. And um, when the Cold War ended, the West had this very hypocritical, oh my goodness, there are human rights abuses going on here. We can't possibly be supporting that. So they withdrew their political and economic support for many of these dictators. And you can go down the list, whether it was Mobutu in Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo, or Mohamed Siad Barre in Somalia, um, on and on and on. Rebel movements, pro-democracy forces sort of loosened up the, the, the terrain, but that armed rebel movements that were, as I said, often different came in and overthrew um, the dictators. So what also happened during that time was that groups that had been repressed by the, the autocrats during the Cold War began to reemerge. And this is where the issue of the war on terror comes around. The United States had supported um, repressive um, governments in North Africa and the Middle East um, that were um, Muslim governments well, the, the people were Muslims, but the governments were um, often secular. Uh, sometimes they weren't, but um, they all felt threatened by Islamists who wanted to um, revamp the political, economic, and social order. Now, um, the Islamists are not to be confused with violent extremists. Islamists were simply um, fundamentalists, like there are Christian fundamentalists who, who want to go back to the basic principles of Christianity. 
So these were Muslim fundamentals who wanted to go back to the basic principles of Islam and be believed like Christians that the religious belief should guide their political, economic, and social life. And many of them were willing to work within the system, but this really threatened the, the dictators. And so they repressed the Islamists, put a lot of them in prison. Um, meanwhile, the US um, thought, hmm, you know, they might be a good counter to the communists, right? They don't like communism either. So um, when the Soviet Union, I'm moving away from Africa for a minute, because this is important. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979 and occupied it until 1989. And this was because of their own regional interests feeling threatened by, um, you know, demands for independence and, you know, threatened their access to oil pipelines and things like that. Um, so the United States thought, hmm, you know, we recruited Christian, conservative Christians in Europe to, to battle communism during the Cold War. We, we gave covert money to uh, political parties and that sort of thing. Um, we can do the same thing with Muslim fundamentalists. And so the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan recruited radical Muslims from around the world to go wage jihad against the Soviet Union in the 1980s. And when the Soviet Union left, boom, these people went with their sophisticated weapons, their training that was provided by the CIA, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, all went home all over the globe. And so by the 1990s, they were back for our purposes in Africa, establishing new violent extremist organizations based on this very extremist form of Islam that is recognized by very few Muslims in the world. They think it's really anti-Muslim. They resent the fact that they are using the cloak of Islam to um, sort of disguise or launch, promote their terrorist activities. But what many in the US don't realize is that the US is at the origin of these groups because of what it did during the Cold War in Afghanistan. And if you look at the most violent insurgency groups in Africa, Many of them are led by people who are veterans of that Afghan war, and they're called, they're hyphenated Afghans. They're the Algerian Afghans, the Libyan Afghans, the Somali Afghans. They also went back to uh, the Middle East. So Osama bin Laden is probably the most famous amongst these from the point of view of Americans. He was working with the CIA, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan um, uh, to counter the Soviets in Afghanistan. And he, of course, is the founder of Al-Qaeda. And Al-Qaeda, of course, um, is the origin of the Islamic State. Um, the, the, the person who started the Islamic State was interned in a US prison camp in Iraq during the, you know, the Iraq War and was, was increasingly radicalized there. So, so what the war on terror became you know, something that was just out of control, that, that we kind of started it, um, um, but then it turned against us. And um, similar to the, the, um, the, the war on communism, the war on terror doesn't make distinctions between insurgencies emanating from local grievances, often very legitimate grievances against abusive governments or governments that have neglected the people. Um, you know, they usually emerge in areas of extreme poverty without opportunity, without education, healthcare, basic social services. And that neglect is often compounded by abuse by the government. 
Um, so that's sort of the origin of the war on terror and the war on terror in Africa. Um, um, and um, usually it's associated with George Bush, um, George W. Bush, because the war on terror really became big on the US radar screen after 9-11. But these activities by Al-Qaeda against US interests began in, you know, in the early part of the 1990s. Um, so you, you may also know of the first attack of it, the World Trade Center, that was in 1993. But then there were you know, ships in the Middle East that were bombed and army bases and two US embassies in Africa in the late 1980s. But the so-called war on terror is that that is something that George Bush uh, named. He also called it a crusade, which was really bad in that it was sort of putting all Muslims in the enemy camp. And in fact, um, you know, the idea was that there are these, these uh, regimes in Africa and the Middle East where the, the, the occupiers of the regimes are Muslim, but they're not su supporting, you know, this violent extremism. So it alienated them. But AFRICOM was um, George Bush's um, um, attempt to, to unify Af uh, American military activities in Africa under a single command. And um, this was something new because um, um, and right after World War II, um, Africa, well, it was still very much colonized by Europe. And so um, um, it, it was controlled by the US um, through uh, the lens of European power. And so um, the, the responsibility for US military activities in Africa was divided between the European Central and Pacific commands. There was no Africa command. So there was UCOM and there was CENTCOM and there's ACCOM, uh, et cetera. And bringing them together as Bush did um, by official pronouncement in 2007, and it became fully functional in October, 2008. That was really just a signal that Africa had moved from the periphery to the center of the US radar screen in terms of what the US considered a military threat. Um, so um, that's, that's sort of the origin, the connection. And you, know, you can ask me questions more specific if you'd like about that. Yeah, sure. So thank you so much. Um, sure. I think one of, the, one of the main questions I have after that is what, what was America's intent behind launching AFRICOM and what did they have, have to gain from launching AFRICOM in your view? Okay, okay, good, thank you. Well, they wanted to have a coordinated strategy. Um, and as we've seen with COVID-19, if there's no leadership at the top and no coordinated strategy, it's a mess. And so that was kind of what was going on in Africa that, you know, there's the army, there's the air force, there's the Marines. Um, um, and, um, you know, they, they, they just weren't pulled together as, as something, something cohesive. Um, and so the idea was that there, there was going to be this um, centralized military command for Africa based on the African continent that could oversee and make sure everything was, you know, working smoothly and wasn't, the, the different forces weren't competing with one another and undermining with another other, or just doing double duty and wasting a lot of money. Interestingly, they did not manage to set up a headquarters in Africa. The headquarters remains in Stuttgart, Germany, which is the headquarters of the European command. The reason for that is that no African country wanted to host it. 
they saw this as a target uh, for, um, you know, whether it be biologic extremists or others who were disgruntled with, um, you know, U.S. military intervention on the continent. And, um, and so nobody, even the closest U.S. allies, would host it. So it remains uh, in Stuttgart, Germany to this day. But um, they, they did sort of reconceptualize um, 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 U.S. Africa policy, um, although this, these sorts of steps were being taken before the unification of the commands. And one of them was to sort of recognize that um, threats to human security, human security rather than national security, um, such as poverty, disease, climate change, corruption, and political oppression, those things provided fertile breeding ground for violent extremism. And these were already, this was already the conclusion of the United Nations and of um, the non-military aspects of US policy like the US Agency for International Development, the State Department, et cetera. And so AFRICOM embraced that. And one would say, well, that's not a bad thing. But the problem was that that was really adjunct to subordinate to their overall military mission. And so they even referred to activities that AFRICOM took over in these realms as being armed social work. And the people who performed the functions were military people, really trained to think like military people and to have military solutions. But now they're doing quote unquote social work, which you know did not make the State Department or USAID happy at all, where people were actually trained in development um, kinds of um, specialties. And the, the military budget in Africa far outweighed the humanitarian uh, budgets. And so um, it had the guise of being um, concerned and, you know, concerned about humanitarianism and development, but really they gave short shrift to it and um, weren't well trained to implement it well. And so it was really a loss for U.S. Agency of International Development uh, um, and the State Department. Um, and there's also a great deal of concern and, and evidence that this is undermining trust for um, U.S. humanitarian endeavors and development endeavors, whether it be government-sponsored or um, non-governmental organizations, the NGOs, because it's associated with these armed, <laughs> very armed soldiers, you know, digging wells and, you know, distributing food and things like that. Um, um, so it, it's, it's, it's considered very, very problematic. Yeah, definitely. Um, so something I've sort of observed that to me, at least, it seems like there's sort of a cycle happening in Africa and with AFRICOM, it's like the U.S. props up a terrorist group or just props up any group for their own purposes. And then later, after they're done using these groups, the U.S. sees these groups as like, oh, they're a problem and now they're a terrorist group and then gets more money to fight them. And then they justify war and they justify what they're doing and propping up more groups by being against human right violations. Right, you right, sort of argue right. in the book that our AFRICOM and um, U.S. African policy destabilized African countries. But do you think this is an intentional effort or do you believe that it's more just messy and like a part of the U.S.'s presence in Africa? I don't think it's intentional because instability is not in our interests. In fact, 
What we want is stability and, and lots of times that the justification for intervention is that we need peace and stability and we need that to protect our business interests. We need that to protect our strategic interests. So ideally we would just have these governments in power that did whatever the US wanted and protected American interests and we didn't have to worry about it. Um, and it's when they don't protect American interests that the U.S. wants to, to get involved. And so, you know, they were worried about the radical regimes, you know, during the Cold War. And then they're worried about, um, they're not as worried about the human rights abusers until the human rights abuses create a backlash or an insurgency. And then, oh my goodness, we need to do something about that. Otherwise, the U.S. has always talked the talk, but not walked the walk. I mean, from the get-go, democracy, self-determination, yeah, sure, only insofar as it keeps the door shut against anything that might impinge on Western European interests uh, and, and promotes our interests. Free trade, yeah, we want free trade, uh, but, but then we don't want to share it. And, um, you know, if, a gov if people elect a government that they want, but we don't like for some reason, well, we don't want that either, right? And so... Um, for instance, Egypt, after the Arab Spring, elected a government that was, you know, dominated by Islamists. And here again, I'm talking about conservative Muslims, not violent extremists. The Muslim Brotherhood was not a violent group, but it believed in these very, very conservative principles and interpretations of Islam, many of which, you know, Westerners and secular Egyptians objected to. Um, uh, but they had the strongest political party. They had the best mobilization. They won the elections free and fair. And um, we didn't like it. So when the military came and overthrew the government and uh, instituted a bloodbath against the, the Muslim Brotherhood and their followers, we said practically nothing. We did nothing. We said practically nothing. Um, and they were doing this with, you know, military equipment that the U.S. had provided over the years. And the current regime is a brutal, brutal regime, um, not only against its own people, but very much engaged in the war in Libya, which is another issue of how we were involved in, you know, the, the mess that's going on in Libya as well. Um, um, so, you know, uh, people people in these countries, um, the, you know, civil society looks askance when the U.S. claims to stand up for democracy because they know it's only if people vote for, quote, unquote, the right, the right candidates and put the right people in power. Otherwise, whoever they put in power is fair game to be undermined in some way by the United States and its allies. So um, I think, yeah, I think that um, they didn't intend to create a mess. Uh, but they don't, they don't think a lot ahead mm -hmm. about the ramifications. There's a, a very unfortunate lack of knowledge about many other parts of the world, um, uh, an unfortunate not, uh, lack of knowledge about the history. So for instance, if um, the people at the top had understood better what was going on in Libya, they would have known that taking out Gaddafi would result in the kind of mess that has resulted, mm -hmm. but they were clueless. They didn't know. And at least those who dominated in the policy making because once again the government of course is not homogeneous and there are a lot of people who were arguing against that that nato u.s french intervention uh and they they just lost out on on that um but then the toppling of Gaddafi and the, the, the still ongoing civil war there all of that spilled over into mali and niger and you know much of the western sahel so 
all that mess that's going on um, um, can be partially attributed to uh, what NATO, including the US and France did in Libya and also French actions in Mali, which is another mm -hmm. story. Yeah, so I think, I think I've gathered the, your response on this over the course of the interview, but um, do you believe that AFRICOM has done more harm or more good? Um, well, AFRICOM, I wouldn't say AFRICOM per se, I would say the war on mm -hmm. terror has done more harm than good, uh, without a doubt. Um, that it's escalated tensions, it's exacerbated conflicts, um, it's created more uh, anti-Americanism, um, um, and, and I've, and I've got to say that, you know, after George W. Bush, the Obama administration continued yep. and in fact yep. intensified some of the practices. And that includes um, increasing use of drone warfare and targeted mm -hmm. um, killings. Yeah. And with little regard for what happened to the civilian population called in military terms, collateral damage, you know, women, children, the elderly and young men who just happened, you know, that be a young man of, of your age, mm -hmm. right? Who's in an area associated with terrorism. Um, and there, therefore that was called a signature strike. Yeah, yeah you know, it would be fair game. And that created huge, huge hostility. Um, and, um, but the, the key was that we weren't losing as many American lives. And so the American people were complacent about it if they knew about it at all. And it, it was shocking to me how many members of Congress when U.S. soldiers are killed in Niger or Somalia say, what? We have soldiers there? What are they doing there? Yeah. You know, the special operations. These are members of Congress. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, it's it's doing incredible damage. And I guess, you know, the more coordinated it is by AFRICOM, um, you know, one could argue that the worse it is, but I'm not sure. I think that sometimes the anarchical um, uh, kind of uh, activities that, you know, where the commanders on the ground are the only ones making the rules that can be, you know, just as bad, if not worse. Yeah. Um, and Obama did try to tighten up some of that, but he left huge um, loopholes. Well, if yeah. I deem it's in national security interest, I can go back to the old ways, um, which he did right before he left office. Yeah. And then Trump merrily picked up and carried on with yeah. that. Um, yeah. Okay. So my final question, as we've talked about sort of what can be done so history doesn't repeat itself with the cycle of the U.S. propping up these groups and the U.S. fighting these groups and just launching, like yeah. creating more and more havoc in Africa. And what, what do you view can be done? The first thing we need to do is redefine national security. Um, I think we have a very, very narrow, very, very short-sighted view of what national security is. And historically, it's been associated with defending our borders against outside attack. And that's certainly the way Donald Trump sees it, right? Um, um, you know, in America first and all of that. Whereas increasingly, the United Nations and many countries around the world are saying true national security will only come with global human security. And that is the some of the elements that I mentioned earlier of, um, you know, eradicating poverty, um, equalizing the distribution of wealth and resources, dealing with climate change, which is generated by the global north, but most affects the global south. Um, um, good governance, not supporting these dictatorships, um, um, 
you know, until we have to leave them because they're now going against our interests. Um, but that would require enormous political will and resources and um, a degree of um, long-sighted planning that we don't seem to have in the United States, um, that self-interest in, in our own country is defined so narrowly that, you know, what I've got is mine and I don't want to pay more taxes because those people and da 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 you know, but until we do something about the dramatic um, inequalities in this society, um, um, we're not going to have peace. And, and so to say we need to somehow understand that about the rest of the world is really, um, you know, it's a major, it's a major task. And um, my, my view is that it will take a long, long time. And that what Americans want is fix it, fix it now, get rich, get rich quick. Um, you know, and they think that throwing more money and guns and, and you know, military technology at a problem is going to resolve it. And it's one, not going to resolve it. And two, it's likely to make it worse. So it, it's, a, it's a fundamental change of attitude that has to really precede things. And then, you know, when there are these conflicts, um, you know, listen to the people in the societies. Um, you know, what are their grievances? What is stoking their, their disenchantment? What's causing the unrest? How, what are violent extremists harnessing, you know, in response to these people's grievances that the governments aren't managing to get? And those people need to be included in conversations about resolving conflicts. They need to be at the bargaining table. They need to be draw, helping to draw up the peace talks. And so often, you know, the peace agreements are imposed from above and outside and they're devised to suit the interests of outsiders and local governing elites. And if they don't like some of the groups that are responsible for the violence, they don't get to come to the peace talks. They don't get to come to the, well, how are we gonna stop the violence if we decide, oh, we're gonna exclude all the jihadists, you know? Um, and so there are just so many things that would seem to be obvious, but they require, you know, relinquishing some power and, um, and, and the sort of know-it-all arrogant attitude that seems to characterize our, our foreign policy. And um, we definitely need more people in government who know that different parts of the world, who've studied the cultures and the history, who know languages. And, and unfortunately, um, those kinds of things are being um, diminished in value in our current educational system where people say, no, you know, I mean, I believe in science and the STEM fields are extremely important, but we can't then say, well, forget the humanities and the social sciences, you know, and oh, you're never going to get a, you know, really lucrative job if you study history and, you know, those kinds of things that parents, and I can empathize, you know, tuition's really high, right? And, you know, they want, you know, they, you don't want to be in debt yeah. for the rest of your life. And um, so, so um, universities, which used to be about educating citizens, it, are now really, um, you know, to get a good job. And um, while I understand that in the economic circumstances, I think we really need to think seriously about what we're cutting and what we're giving up and what that means for the world. This episode was produced by Tobias Paperno from his studio in his living room on GarageBand, and this project was made possible by Mr. Moscow's International Political Economy class at the Deakin School. Thank you so much.
you so much for listening and tune in next week.